Section twelve of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Section twelve. During the summer of 1689 several high ecclesiastical dignities became vacant, and were bestowed upon divines who were sitting in the Jerusalem chamber. It has already been mentioned that Thomas, Bishop of Worcester, died just before the day fixed for taking the oaths. Lake, Bishop of Chichester, lived just long enough to refuse them, and with his last breath declared that he would maintain, even at the stake, the doctrine of indefeasible hereditary right. The see of Chichester was filled by Patrick, that of Worcester by Stillingfleet, and the deanery of St. Paul's, which Stillingfleet quitted, was given to Tillotson. That Tillotson was not raised to the episcopal bench excited some surprise, but in truth it was because the government held his services in the highest estimation that he was suffered to remain a little longer a simple presbyter. The most important office in the convocation was that of Prolocutor of the Lower House. The Prolocutor was to be chosen by the members, and the only moderate man who had a chance of being chosen was Tillotson. It had, in fact, been already determined that he should be the next Archbishop of Canterbury. When he went to kiss hands for his new deanery, he warmly thanked the King. "'Your Majesty has now set me at ease for the remainder of my life.' "'No such thing, doctor, I assure you,' said William. He then plainly intimated that, whenever Sancroft should cease to fill the highest ecclesiastical station, Tillotson would succeed to it. Tillotson stood aghast, for his nature was quiet and unambitious. He was beginning to feel the infirmities of old age. He cared little for money. Of worldly advantages, those which he most valued were an honest fame and the general goodwill of mankind— those advantages he already possessed, and he could not but be aware that, if he became primate, he should incur the bitterest hatred of a powerful party, and should become a mark for obloquy from which his gentle and sensitive nature shrank as from the rack or the wheel. William was earnest and resolute. It is necessary, he said, for my service, and I must lay upon your conscience the responsibility of refusing me your help. Here the conversation ended. It was, indeed, not necessary that the point should be immediately decided, for several months were still to elapse before the archbishopric would be vacant. Tillotson bemoaned himself with unfeigned anxiety and sorrow to Lady Russell, whom, of all human beings, he most honoured and trusted. He hoped, he said, that he was not inclined to shrink from the service of the Church, but he was convinced that his present line of service was that in which he could be the most useful. If he should be forced to accept so high and invidious a post as the primacy, he should soon sink under the load of duties and anxieties too heavy for his strength. His spirits, and with his spirits his abilities, would fail him. He gently complained of Burnet, who loved and admired him with a truly generous heartiness, and who had laboured to persuade both the King and Queen that there was in England only one man fit for the highest ecclesiastical dignity. "'The Bishop of Salisbury,' said Tillotson, "'is one of the best and worst friends that I know.' 
nothing that was not a secret to Burnet was likely to be long a secret to anybody. It soon began to be whispered about that the King had fixed on Tillotson to fill the place of Sancroft. The news caused cruel mortification to Compton, who not unnaturally conceived that his own claims were unrivalled. He had educated the Queen and her sister, and to the instruction which they had received from him might fairly be ascribed, at least in part, the firmness with which, in spite of the influence of their father, they had adhered to the established religion. Compton was, moreover, the only prelate who, during the late reign, had raised his voice in Parliament against the dispensing power, the only prelate who had been suspended by the High Commission, the only prelate who had signed the invitation to the Prince of Orange, the only prelate who had actually taken arms against popery and arbitrary power, the only prelate save one who had voted against a regency. Among the ecclesiastics of the province of Canterbury who had taken the oaths, he was the highest in rank. He had therefore held, during some months, a vicarious primacy. He had crowned the new sovereigns, he had consecrated the new bishops, he was about to preside in the convocation. It may be added that he was the son of an earl, and that no person of equally high birth then sat, or had ever sat since the Reformation, on the Episcopal bench. That the government should put over his head a priest of his own diocese, who was the son of a Yorkshire clothier, and who was distinguished only by abilities and virtues, was provoking, and Compton, though by no means a bad-hearted man, was much provoked. Perhaps his vexation was increased by the reflection that he had, for the sake of those by whom he was thus slighted, done some things which had strained his conscience and sullied his reputation, that he had at one time practised the disingenuous arts of a diplomatist, and, at another time, given scandal to his brethren by wearing the buff coat and jack-boots of a trooper. He could not accuse Tillotson of inordinate ambition. But, though Tillotson was most unwilling to accept the archbishopric himself, he did not use his influence in favour of Compton, but earnestly recommended Stillingfleet as the man fittest to preside over the Church of England. The consequence was that, on the eve of the meeting of convocation, the bishop who was to be at the head of the upper house became the personal enemy of the presbyter whom the government wished to see at the head of the lower house. This quarrel added new difficulties to difficulties which little needed any addition. It was not till the 20th of November that the convocation met for the dispatch of business. The place of meeting had generally been St. Paul's Cathedral. But St. Paul's Cathedral was slowly rising from its ruins, and though the dome already towered high above the hundred steeples of the city, the choir had not yet been opened for public worship. The assembly therefore sat at Westminster. A table was placed in the beautiful chapel of Henry the Seventh. Compton was in the chair. On his right and left those suffragans of Canterbury who had taken the oaths were ranged in gorgeous vestments of scarlet and miniver. Below the table was assembled the crowd of presbyters. Beveridge preached a Latin sermon, in which he warmly eulogised the existing system, and yet declared himself favourable to a moderate reform. Ecclesiastical laws were, he said, of two kinds. Some laws were fundamental and eternal, they derived their authority from God, nor could any religious community repeal them without ceasing to form a part of the universal church. Other laws were local and temporary. They had been framed by human wisdom, and might be altered by human wisdom. 
they ought not indeed to be altered without grave reasons, but surely at that moment such reasons were not wanting. To unite a scattered flock in one fold under one shepherd, to remove stumbling blocks from the path of the weak, to reconcile hearts long estranged, to restore spiritual discipline to its primitive vigour, to place the best and purest of Christian societies on a base broad enough to stand against all the attacks of earth and hell, these were objects which might well justify some modification, not of Catholic institutions, but of national or provincial usages. The lower house, having heard this discourse, proceeded to appoint a prolocutor. Sharp, who was probably put forward by the members favourable to a comprehension as one of the highest churchmen among them, proposed Tillotson. Jane, who had refused to act under the royal commission, was proposed by the other side. After some animated discussion, Jane was elected by fifty-five votes to twenty-eight. The prolocutor was formally presented to the Bishop of London, and made, according to ancient usage, a Latin oration. In this oration the Anglican Church was extolled as the most perfect of all institutions. There was a very intelligible intimation that no change whatever in her doctrine, her discipline, or her ritual was required, and the discourse concluded with a most significant sentence. Compton, when a few months before he exhibited himself in the somewhat unclerical character of a colonel of horse, had ordered the colours of his regiment to be embroidered with the well-known words, Nolumus leges Angliae mutari, and with these words Jane closed his peroration. Still the low churchmen did not relinquish all hope. They very wisely determined to begin by proposing to substitute lessons taken from the canonical books for the lessons taken from the Apocrypha. It should seem that this was a suggestion which, even if there had not been a single dissenter in the kingdom, might well have been received with favour, for the Church had, in her sixth article, declared that the canonical books were, and that the apocryphal books were not, entitled to be called holy scriptures, and to be regarded as the rule of faith. Even this reform, however, the high churchmen were determined to oppose. They asked, in pamphlets which covered the counters of Paternoster Row in Little Britain, why country congregations should be deprived of the pleasure of hearing about the ball of pitch with which Daniel choked the dragon, and about the fish whose liver gave forth such a fume as sent the devil flying from Ecbatana to Egypt. And were there not chapters of the wisdom of the son of Sirach far more interesting and edifying than the genealogies and muster-rolls which made up a large part of the chronicles of the Jewish kings, and of the narrative of Nehemiah? No grave divine, however, would have liked to maintain in Henry the Seventh's chapel that it was impossible to find in many hundreds of pages dictated by the Holy Spirit fifty or sixty chapters more edifying than anything which could be extracted from the works of the most respectable, uninspired moralist or historian. The leaders of the majority therefore determined to shun a debate in which they must have been reduced to a disagreeable dilemma. Their plan was not to reject the recommendations of the commissioners, but to prevent those recommendations from being discussed, and with this view a system of tactics was adopted which proved successful. The law, as it had been interpreted during a long course of years, prohibited the convocation from even deliberating on any ecclesiastical ordinance without a previous warrant from the Crown. 
Such a warrant, sealed with the great seal, was brought in form to Henry the Seventh Chapel by Nottingham. He, at the same time, delivered a message from the King. His Majesty exhorted the Assembly to consider calmly and without prejudice the recommendations of the Commission, and declared that he had nothing in view but the honour and advantage of the Protestant religion in general, and of the Church of England in particular. The bishops speedily agreed on an address of thanks for the royal message, and requested the concurrence of the lower house. Jane and his adherents raised objection after objection. First they claimed the privilege of presenting a separate address. When they were forced to waive this claim, they refused to agree to any expression which imported that the Church of England had any fellowship with any other Protestant community. Amendments and reasons were sent backward and forward. Conferences were held at which Burnet on one side and Jane on the other were the chief speakers. At last, with great difficulty, a compromise was made, and an address, cold and ungracious compared with that which the bishops had framed, was presented to the King in the banqueting-house. He dissembled his vexation, returned a kind answer, and intimated a hope that the assembly would now at length proceed to consider the great question of comprehension. Such, however, was not the intention of the leaders of the lower house. As soon as they were again in Henry the Seventh Chapel, one of them raised a debate about the non-juring bishops. In spite of the unfortunate scruple which those prelates entertained, they were learned and holy men. Their advice might, at this conjuncture, be of the greatest service to the Church. The upper house was hardly an upper house in the absence of the primate and many of his most respectable suffragans. Could nothing be done to remedy this evil? Another member complained of some pamphlets which had lately appeared, and in which the convocation was not treated with proper deference. The assembly took fire. Was it not monstrous that this heretical and schismatical trash should be cried by the hawkers about the streets, and should be exposed to sale in the booths of Westminster Hall, within a hundred yards of the prolocutor's chair? The work of mutilating the liturgy and of turning cathedrals into conventicles might surely be postponed till the synod had taken measures to protect its own freedom and dignity. It was then debated how the printing of such scandalous books should be prevented. Some were for indictments, some for ecclesiastical censures. In such deliberations as these, week after week passed away. Not a single proposition tending to a comprehension had been even discussed. Christmas was approaching. At Christmas there was to be a recess. The bishops were desirous that, during the recess, a committee should sit to prepare business. The lower house refused to consent. That house, it was now evident, was fully determined not even to enter on the consideration of any part of the plan which had been framed by the royal commissioners. The proctors of the diocese were in a worse humour than when they first came up to Westminster. Many of them had probably never before passed a week in the capital, and had not been aware how great the difference was between a town divine and a country divine. The sight of the luxuries and comforts enjoyed by the popular preachers of the city raised, not unnaturally, some sore feeling in a Lincolnshire or Carnarvonshire vicar, who was accustomed to live as hardly as a small farmer. The very circumstance that the London clergy were generally for a comprehension made the representatives of the rural clergy obstinate on the other side. 
The prelates were, as a body, sincerely desirous that some concession might be made to the nonconformists. But the prelates were utterly unable to curb the mutinous democracy. They were few in number. Some of them were objects of extreme dislike to the parochial clergy. The President had not the full authority of a primate, nor was he sorry to see those who had, as he concerned, used him ill, thwarted and mortified. It was necessary to yield. The convocation was prorogued for six weeks. When those six weeks had expired it was prorogued again, and many years elapsed before it was permitted to transact business. So ended, and for ever, the hope that the Church of England might be induced to make some concession to the scruples of the nonconformists. A learned and respectable minority of the clerical order relinquished that hope with deep regret. Yet in a very short time even Barnet and Tillotson found reason to believe that their defeat was really an escape, and that victory would have been a disaster. A reform, such as in the days of Elizabeth would have united the great body of English Protestants, would in the days of William have alienated more hearts than it would have conciliated. The schism which the oaths had produced was as yet insignificant. Innovations such as those proposed by the royal commissioners would have given it a terrible importance. As yet a layman, though he might think the proceedings of the Convention unjustifiable, and though he might applaud the virtue of the non-juring clergy, still continued to sit under the accustomed pulpit, and to kneel at the accustomed altar. But if, just at this conjuncture, while his mind was irritated by what he thought the wrong done to his favourite divines, and while he was perhaps doubting whether he ought not to follow them, his ears and eyes had been shocked by changes in the worship to which he was fondly attached, if the compositions of the doctors of the Jerusalem chamber had taken the place of the old collects, if he had seen clergymen without surplices carrying the chalice and the pattern up and down the aisle to seated communicants, the tie which bound him to the established church would have been dissolved. He would have repaired to some non-juring assembly where the service which he loved was performed without mutilation. The new sect, which as yet consisted almost exclusively of priests, would soon have been swelled by numerous and large congregations, and in those congregations would have been found a much greater proportion of the opulent, of the highly descended, and of the highly educated than any other body of dissenters could show. The episcopal schismatics, thus reinforced, would probably have been as formidable to the new king and his successors as ever the Puritan schismatics had been to the princes of the House of Stuart. It is an indisputable and a most instructive fact that we are, in a great measure, indebted for the civil and religious liberty which we enjoy to the pertinacity with which the High Church Party, in the convocation of 1689, refused even to deliberate on any plan of comprehension. End of section 12 End of the History of England from the Accession of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 14, by Thomas Babington Macaulay